Freeland Oscar Stanley, an American inventor and architect, was dying from tuberculosis in 1903. His doctor recommended fresh air and sunshine, seeing as he was probably going to be dead by the end of the summer, and there was nothing else to say about it. So Mr. Stanley and his wife moved to Colorado, where he miraculously recovered after hiking every day in the Rocky Mountains and getting fresh air and changing his diet. He eventually lived to be 91 years old. He and his wife had fallen in love with the place, but he wanted a little more comfort by the time he was well, and he built the famously haunted Stanley Hotel along with building a hydroelectric plant in the mountains there so that the hotel could have power. In the early 70s, there was a downward spiral. They were losing money because of the cost to run the power, and its glory kind of faded. And all the other hotels that were popping up had air conditioning and more modernized amenities. People were reporting hauntings there as well, which back in that time was not such a big draw so the place was losing money and it was near closing until Stephen King stayed there one night with his wife King was struggling with his latest project and he needed an isolated setting for the novel the locals suggested the Stanley Hotel he'd heard about the place before and he got curious and wanted to check it out they were the only guests that night because it was closing for the season the next day. They ate their dinner at a table alone, with all the other chairs already sitting on top of the tables. The place was empty. His wife, Tabitha, went back to the room, number 217, while Stephen wandered about the hotel and visited the bartender, Grady, in the hotel bar. That night, he had a nightmare of his three-year-old son screaming and running through the corridors, completely terrified while something was chasing him. King was jerked awake, of course. He sat in a chair overlooking the Rocky Mountains from his window, lit a cigarette, and by the time he had finished his smoke, the story, The Shining, was born. We all know that King wasn't really happy with Kubrick's portrayal of his story for various reasons. But that didn't make it any less wicked. I do like that movie a lot. And so do a lot of other people. King's story is a bit different, though. The hotel is haunted, and always has been, way before King and his wife stayed there. The energy of the place inspired his story. He didn't make up the sensitive things that he was feeling as he wandered through the halls and roamed around that place in the night by himself. There's even a small pet cemetery outside the hotel for a golden retriever and a white cat, both which have been seen by guests staying at the Stanley. We're well into our first week of October. This is Natural and Wild's second edition of my Oktobercast podcast, Fall Festivities. It's time to start having fun, ladies and gents. Autumn is a time for reaping what you sow, harvesting what you worked all summer to plant. But we don't live in the 1800s anymore, so instead of that, it's probably just time for most people to buy a pumpkin that somebody else planted and carve a weird face in it. 
There are all sorts of delicious fall traditions, and they're all pretty bizarre when you think about them. I love them, though. They all have their backstories, and they remind me of that game we play in kindergarten here in the U.S., where you line up all the kids and start at the front of the line. One kid whispers a sentence in the second kid's ear, and by the time that secret gets whispered all the way down the line... That last child ends up announcing an entirely different sentence. Fall traditions and holidays are kind of like that. They start one way and they get skewed and reshaped over time until there's something completely new. Let's look at bobbing for apples first. Under the Roman Empire, the second day of October was held in special regard to celebrate a Roman goddess, Pomona. She was a goddess of fruit and trees. Pomus is Latin for fruit. Her main symbol was a red apple, and apples were considered a pretty sacred, important fruit back then, and it was associated with love. The Romans would pray to her and ask that the bitterness of existence be transformed into sweetness. This later became the foundation of a lot of old Appalachian granny magic love spells. Now, as the centuries went by, the Roman and Celtic pagan traditions fused, and there was the occult foundation from where bobbing of apples had its roots. One of the games played back in the 1800s, when there was a lot of social pressure to be married, this game would be played by women who carved the names of men they liked into all the apples and put them into a bucket of water. The objective was to stick your head down in it and grab an apple in your mouth, hoping you'd get the man that you wanted. If you did it on the first try, that was a sure sign it was going to work and you were going to marry this man. If you got it on the second try, it meant you and that man would get together, but the love wouldn't last. If you didn't get it until the third try or you fell altogether, well, that was just not going to work out and you'd better go set your sights on another dude. There were also games being played that were kind of designed around the notion of of witchcraft and, and casting spells with apple peels. Women would throw these apple pills over their shoulders with their eyes closed, and they were supposed to land in the shape of the letter of the man that you were going to marry. So the apple bobbing came from the goddess Pomona from Rome, and apples have been a fruit of love forever. Candy corn. It was invented in the late 1800s at One Durrell Candy Company in Philadelphia by a man named George Renninger. They originally called it chicken feed. Now, if you don't come from a line of farmers, which I do, you probably don't know that back in the old days, people grew and stored corn to feed their chickens with. You had to let it dry out and shuck it and get all the kernels off so you could have these giant buckets of dried corn kernels to throw to the chickens. My great-grandmother did this. So this is where the idea for uh, the candy corn came from, chicken feed. Corn was also grown and fed to a lot of other farm animals. Our family raised pigs that would eat it. And there was an entire giant field dedicated to just corn. It was over the creek where I live. I videotaped that area before and shown little bits and pieces of it on social media. I think there's a YouTube video somewhere of the place before we got it all cleaned up. 
and right before the trees grew back. Now it's beautiful. It's very nostalgic to look at. If I planted a cornfield over there, it would look just like the old days again, back in the Prohibition era. So what's next? We got apple bobbing, candy corn, and of course, jack-o'-lanterns. Why do we carve up pumpkins? Well, first of all, Halloween itself was a mixture of several traditions and became an Americanized version of a holiday. A lot of its parts were brought over with the first colonists, which were mainly from England and Ireland. The older Celtic traditions believed that candles would light the way for ancestral spirits to find their families, or I don't know, take a a spiritual road trip. (laughs) In any regard, the first carved up foods were not pumpkins, because the land in Ireland was kind of hard to grow pumpkins on. So it was originally turnips and potatoes. Now, why would they carve turnips and potatoes and not just stick a candle or a lantern outside? Because it goes a little deeper. There's an old Irish legend of Stingy Jack. Stingy Jack invited the devil to have a drink with him. Jack didn't want to pay for his drink, so he connived and convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin to pay for both drinks. The devil agreed, but when he turned himself into a coin, Jack just put him in his pocket next to a silver cross. The legend is that the devil lost his power next to that silver cross and couldn't turn himself back into the devil. Jack eventually decided to free the devil under the conditions that he'd not bother Jack for one year. And if he died, the devil also wouldn't take his soul. Devil agreed. And the next year, Jack met up with him again and tricked him again. This devil sounds kind of retarded, by the way. (laughs) But the next year, he conned the devil into climbing a tree to pick some fruit. While he was up there, Jack carved the sign of the cross into the tree's bark, and the devil couldn't come back down. Until, according to Jack, he promised not to bother him for another ten years. Soon after that, Jack dies, and God won't allow him into heaven because he was a con artist and a trickster. And the devil was still mad at him for playing tricks on him and kept his word. He didn't let him go to hell. So Jack was stuck in purgatory because nobody wanted him. Jack goes then off into the dark night with only a coal to light his way. He stuck the coal into a carved out turnip to carry with him like a little lantern. And that's the way his spirit's been roaming ever since. The Irish call him Jack of the Lantern, or Jack O'Lantern. So it begun a tradition in both Ireland and Scotland where people would carve turnips into creepy faces and stick candles inside to scare away Stingy Jack. In addition to Stingy Jack, these were supposed to scare away other unsavory spirits too. So this year, if you carve a pumpkin or a turnip which probably looks way creepier as it shrinks up. Make it good and scary so you can keep that old trickster Jack away from you. Now, Halloween. 
Of course, everybody knows that certain parts of it come from European cultural tradition, mainly pagan traditions. But when it made its way to America, it became a fusion between these old European customs and Native American legends. This was all founded in community here. During the harvest months, people would come together and have festivals to celebrate these harvests. Neighbors would get together and tell family stories of the dead. There rose ghost stories. There was fortune-telling, singing, and dancing. All these customs came together, and people celebrated the end of the year and ate a lot of good food and played a lot of good music. The trick-or-treating idea came in later when they got kids involved. It actually stemmed from the Middle Ages, but it really had a comeback during the uh, 1920s, 30s, all the way up to the 50s. But before that, these celebrations were mainly for the adults, and they revolved around old pranks and witchcraft. In an effort to clean it all up, community leaders and churches and newspapers would start encouraging parents to make it a a more family-friendly event. And so the parties started focusing on more innocent games and food and costumes. Now, before all this, there was this strange tradition that came about because there were a lot of poor people in the Middle Ages who went around begging for food about this time of year. And there rose this tradition of giving them cakes and asking the beggars to pray for the family's ancestors and lost relatives in return for those cakes. These were called soul cakes or spirit cakes which I'm pretty sure was one of these things the whole trick-or-treating idea was influenced by. In addition to, of course, communities trying to make it less expensive to pass around food during the autumn season. A lot of people take for granted and forget that we didn't have grocery stores until 1930. 1930 saw the first real supermarket Prior to that, people had to go to a masked general store or some kind of general store. The more popular ones were owned by the masked family, especially here in North Carolina, which is actually my ancestry, too. We have a general store here owned by the masked family in the mountains of western North Carolina that still has some old music instruments hanging on the walls that belong to a few folk entertainers in my family. But people would go into these stores and have to ask the person behind the counter to go get whatever supplies that they needed. And they weren't pre-made foods. You didn't get to walk down aisles and find stuff already canned and ready to go. Most people had farms, and if they didn't, they found somebody else with one. So any treats or food passed around for the tradition of of trick-or-treating in the fall was handmade in the 20s and 30s. And it wasn't easily come by. People put effort into that. It was a community thing. You know, I myself appreciate the apple legends and superstitions, the rituals behind using a simple object in nature to conjure. But I'm not a witch. (laughs) But I know some people who think I'm one. I do come from generations who did do obscure, strange, and ritualistic things out here in the woods, and it kind of comes natural to me. But in my mind and in my heart, it's more of a, a minimalism, a simplicity to living and retaining happiness and peace, 
As I take an apple and peel its skin away, I'm highly focused on it. I'm paying attention and remembering this was once a blossom, a baby, out on a tree in the woods, and then it grew into a woman, a beautiful fruit, and it sweetened in the sunshine and with the water that moved up through the roots of its mother. And now, as I take it into my own body, it blends with my own energy and it becomes something new, something that will sweeten me, something that brings that sunshine and that water into my life force. And this is a gift. It's nourishment from a creative force of life somewhere. And I appreciate it like nothing else in that moment. And it brings me happiness and health It puts a smile on my face. And this is the kind of minimalism or simplicity that keeps me grounded, keeps me humble and connected to the earth and the heavens and everything. The idea that one is poor without lacking in stuff, it's all in your head. It's all in the mind. Living simple or minimal is not really that minimal. It's just as full and abundant as buying up a bunch of stuff and being surrounded by things. The only difference between me and a financially wealthy man is convenience. You can have very, very similar things and experiences. You don't have to live like this isn't available to you. Just build it. Make it. Grow it. Some people go out and spend money on a thing that's already built. Some people learn to build it. My late father, he liked cars. And he had some very nice cars in an old garage on his property. But he didn't buy those cars. He'd go out and find these old broken motors and parts from junkyards and classified ads. And he built those cars himself. He learned how to do it, and he did it. I remember watching him build a Camaro by himself. It took forever, but then he had this beautiful, shiny, apple-red Camaro. Apple. (laughs) I think the theme of this podcast today is turning into apples. (laughs) But yeah, one day he all of a sudden had this gorgeous Camaro because he learned how to build it, and he built it. I always wondered about those nice, super expensive peptide and vitamin serums that wealthy women pay $200 per ounce for, and why I didn't have one on my shelf. Because I'm really into moisturizers and skincare, it's my girly thing, and I wanted it. So, I learned how to make them. And as I learned, I realized that it was really easy and really accessible All I had to do was order a few things like furilic acid or hyaluronic acid, do a little research, learn how to put them together, learn a little bit of chemistry. Now I have way more than an ounce of that stuff sitting on my shelf. I'm not saying that you don't need any money at all. That's not how the world works. But you don't really need as much as you think. Abundance comes in mysterious packages. It comes from places and from people that you'd never expect. We're surrounded by things so much. While I do live minimally, according to the common society standards, I'm actually surrounded by quite a lot. 
I have a full life. Complications and new experiences and opportunities and things and all. I have a Garden of Eden out here in the wilderness. I have everything I need. But it doesn't come from just sitting around and waiting for somebody to bring it to me already. Already cooked and prepared and sat in front of my face. My home where I rest wasn't just standing there, move-in ready with furniture and appliances when I first got here. I built it all. And when winter comes, I'll be sleeping in just as comfortable a bed with just as much heat flowing through the cabin as any rich man. And yet I'm more connected to it all because I've spent the time building it and learning about every corner and characteristic of it and where all the materials came from and how comfortable it is. And now there's something so much more nurturing and protective about it, which puts me into an appreciative, again, humble and calm state of mind. And it keeps me there. And this is where I find a lot of my happiness and my calamity. This kind of appreciation keeps me from becoming depressed, which usually just comes from boredom anyway. The need to fulfill the heart and the soul by doing something. I'm a creator. I'm of a creator. We all are. And if we're not creating, then there's this void We're built to conjure, to make, make things, make love, make a way, build a dream. I know people in Western North Carolina who don't have a lot of money, but manage to find a way to buy large plots of land or to build businesses. They got together with partners and friends and established co-ops and working farms. They live simple, according to today's general consensus of what simple is, yet they have everything. They have so much, and they're happy. If you want something and you believe in it, and this is the most important part, if you believe you're worth having it, then you'll find a way. This has been Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'd like to thank my most prominent supporters, Chris Nolan, Bruce Presson, Robin Umber, Yvonne Ragland, Arnold Bloom, William Bishop, and Sheila McGregor. I want to thank those of you who have supported me through tips, whether big or small, through the donate contribution button on my website. This is a listener-supported podcast, and all funds go to music licensing, editing software subscriptions, and satellite connection here in the wilderness, so I can stay online for you guys. Tune in next week, and have a great weekend.